Hey everybody, welcome to episode 9 of How's That Day, a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenhaft here to introduce you to my co-host, the one and only king of my world, Mr. Tom Bond. Are you there? Hi. Yeah, I'm there. Just leave you dangle and see how long you go. Oh, I can go forever like this. Each week, Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture and anything else we feel like talking about. I'm going to start this week with the same question I always ask Tom, how's that day? Phil, uh, today's been good. I forget if I mentioned last week when we recorded that my foot has been acting up. Did I mention that? You mentioned on a previous, I don't think it was last week, you mentioned on a previous podcast that uh, you were walking around and I saw some photos of you with a cane. Yeah, so that must have been from the most recent episode because it's been about a week and a half now where uh, my dang arthritis and my dang foot has been acting up bad it's getting better though god you're old so that yeah that feels good i uh was able to yesterday i was able to walk around for the first time in like a week and a half which felt nice besides that what i do today i met my uh writing partner sarah for lunch what'd you eat i had a turkey panini she actually had uh this really good almond flavored ravioli it was like made in an almond sauce Okay. And it was it was really delicious. I'm sorry, not almond, a walnut, a walnut sauce. And it was really good. So I had some of that. And then uh, I went to go see Deadpool 2, which we're going to talk about later. Cool, cool. And tomorrow is our first day mixing Mamma Mia 2 at work. Here we go again. Here we go again. So I can now say I have worked uh, at that mixing place for a Tom Hanks movie, The Circle, and a Meryl Streep movie, Mamma Mia 2. So I've, I've handled... America's parents. It makes me happy. Um, I believe that Mamma Mia, at least the first one, I don't know about the second one, the first one was produced by Mr. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. That is correct. Uh, him and his producing partner, Gary, they are uh, producing this one as well. So you, this is technically a second time that you're working with the Hanks. I guess that's true, yeah. Cool. Well, that's exciting. I that's true. Although you've I probably never met will him. not meet yeah, him. Yeah, I was say, you've never met no. Hanks, but you know, that's fine. You're on, you're on, you're on the crew. He, he did produce The Circle as well, but... Um, as well as starting it, and I, I didn't get a chance to meet him. Boo. But th- that's okay. Maybe someday, when we're, when we're directing him in our movie. You know who I'd love to meet from Mamma Mia 2? Amanda? Amanda Seyfried. Ah, I was right, yeah. yeah. My girl. I didn't, she's my girl. Yeah, I love you her. Have, so you've had a crush on that girl for many a years. Yep, and she's a Twin Peaks alum now. Now she's, yeah, now she's legit. Now she's got that, and what that I, Lynch approval. Oh, I also, I saw another movie this week, speaking of her. Oh, yeah? I saw I saw the um, the Ethan Hawke movie first reformed. Oh really? I've been dying to see it. It's been getting great reviews. I don't. I, I'm sure it'll start playing here in a week or two, probably. Yeah. Sorry, Gary Getzman. I was blanking on his last name. That's Tom Hanks' producing partner, Gary Getzman. He's doing um, both Mamma Mia's. Yeah, I saw First Reformed, which is the Ethan Hawke film. I'm, why am I blanking on so many names right now? Written and directed Paul by Schrader. Paul Schrader. Yeah. yeah, of course. Taxi Driver, American Gigolo, Paul Schrader. Uh, it was it was pretty good. It was interesting. Cool. I don't know if uh, we'll talk about it maybe when you catch up to it down the road. Yeah, I'm interested to see it. Paul Schrader is uh, a very interesting guy, very interesting director. I've always been very curious about his career. He's had some very interesting highs and some interesting lows. I 
happened to watch to have watched Mamma Mia within the last several days. Really? Yeah. Shell had it on. It's on Netflix right now. Came home and she was just she's like she'll start a movie and watch it in chunks. Yeah, you know, like she just does it has it on in the background while she's doing stuff. So I'll come home sometimes and see her in the multiple chunks going through the movie. So I saw Mamma Mia in chunks over the last few days. I hate that movie, by the way. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I saw it in theaters, actually. It's so obno- It's so obnoxious and cloying. I haven't seen it since, And it's though. so... Yeah. Just watching it, the thing I told her, the thing that is so hard to watch, is that I don't know why they felt like they needed to stage the whole thing like it's on a, on a stage. They seem to have forgotten that a, in a movie you can move cameras and you're not limited to the c- confines of a stage because there's, like, a number where... Uh, Meryl Streep singing on a mountain t- on a mountainside, and it's just her belting out a song, standing there staring at the fucking clouds for three minutes, and it's so boring. It's so boring to look. I'm like, give her something to do, Jesus. I'm this is a movie, and then I, and who the fuck gave Pierce Brosnan permission to sing that many times? It's just an awful movie. I hope. And oh, here's my next question. I I believe I saw an article that said they used like. 18 of the 23 ABBA greatest hits in the first movie. So, like, what are they going to do for the next one? Are they just redoing the exact same songs? They're going to do the final five, but just jam them out like it's a fish concert. Yeah, they're just going to, like, let's do let's have a 20, <laughs> like let's have a 25 minute, minute. Well, I don't know if you've seen Mamma Mia. Oh, you, you've seen it. You saw it in theaters. So, you, you said you haven't seen it since. But I don't know if you remember the end of the movie, but Jesus, it, it fucking ends forever. People talk about. Return of the King having ten endings. Jesus, go watch Mamma Mia. It's literally like almost becomes a joke. Like you think the credits are about to roll, and then like Meryl Streep like comes out and she's like, ah, just fucking with you, and she just starts dancing again, and they do another song, and I'm just like, Jesus, this is just a, they're just being mean now. Like it's just obnoxious. I fucking hate that movie. And good luck with good luck with uh you know working with the crew of the second one though. I w- you know I wish them the best. Well, I've worked. Uh... Gary Getzman um, has mixed a few of his movies up there before, and I'm looking at it actually. Tom Hanks is not credited on Mamma Mia 2 as a producer or an EP. Gary Getzman is credited as a producer on the sequel. They were both uh, producers, and well, Hanks was an executive producer on the first one, so I don't know. Maybe um, Hanks had to bow out for a certain reason, but Gary's a great dude. He's really, really funny guy, really like laid back, calming influence over the whole crew i know him and uh his right hand lady nori they're great people they've been up there a few times we did uh the notes from the field at hbo one woman show with anna devere smith that was uh, yeah. another gary getzman project so you know friends of the company so i'm excited to see him very nice very nice. and apparently like the lunches are catered every day which is going to be awesome catered lunches oh is that uh, cool I, 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 I don't know what that means. I just assume it means they're gonna like we're gonna have way too much. Food I, hopefully, I hope it's it doesn't say with catered food. Maybe you're good. It's your it's a, the quality is only you know of the choices you get. So it's maybe they hopefully they have good taste and they're getting from a good place that'll have a wide selection. Oh man, I wish I could remember the name. I, I would love to shout them out. I think it was called like Mama's Catering uh, for our for our movie down in Texas that catered the lunches every day and every single it was 15 lunches and every single lunch was different the food was so good it was all homemade like it was this one woman project and she just knocked it out of the park every single day it was unreal nice just good mix of 
varieties of food and stuff to, to yeah, feed a like large. Yeah, we'd get Italian food one day, then Thai food the next, and then uh, she would always have these like delicious desserts that would come. I ate so good on that project, man. Oof, God, nice. I miss it. I had Thai food for dinner tonight. Did you now? I did. Yeah, it's Shell Shell's birthday. My fiance Shell. Um, it is her birthday tonight. Happy birthday, Shell. Yeah. So. We, I, I'd work today. I had to go shoot a commercial for a seafood joint. <laughs> that was my job today. And after I did that, I rushed home, took my dog on a walk, and then we went to dinner. And we went to this place called Thai Nine. Shout out to them. We've eaten there quite a bit. It's her favorite restaurant. Uh, I think you went, yeah, you went there with us actually when you visited once. We were talking about that. I was going to say, I feel like I went there. Yeah, you went there. Yeah. It's her favorite joint. I like it. I always, I can, my only problem with the place is I never remember what I like there. I've never been, I don't have like a set meal there. So every time I go there, I feel like I'm searching the menu for like, I don't know what I like here, but I, I, I always get something new. Today, I kind of screwed up. Today was the worst I've screwed up in, in terms of ordering, where I didn't really like what I got as much as I was hoping. What'd you get? It was like a ginger uh, chicken stir fry. It was just a little too much ginger for my taste and just uh, a little overpowering. In the ginger department, uh, in in the sauce, I liked every all the like. It was a bunch of like mushrooms and chicken and peppers and onions and uh, you know rice and other stuff. You know, it was it was good. It was just instant. You know, it was just the sauce was not to my liking very much. But otherwise, you know, I generally have good food. Did Shell have a good time? Did she have a good meal? Yeah, she had a good meal. That's all that matters. You know, she liked it. That's what yeah. matters. We, we went on a nice little walk afterwards. We came home. Uh, we watched West Wing, gave each other some back rubs. You know, it was a nice, it was a nice evening. Of course, you watched the West Wing. Yeah, that was her suggestion, man. That wasn't mine. She, we, it's That's why she's the girl of your dreams. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. We have like a saying to each other where she's just like, it's like you want to do West Wings and back rubs tonight because we we like have a lotion and we like rub each other down all the time. Oh, it just made me throw up in my mouth. That's. I just hate that. I hate that so much. I want everyone to be miserable. Well, you know, if they hang around you long enough, that can happen. Yeah, exactly. I don't like any of this mushy love bullshit. It's my fiance's birthday. I will express my love. No, happy birthday, Sean. Well, actually, I'm sorry. It's actually 1248 my time. It's not her birthday anymore, so fuck that. Fuck off, Shell. Yeah, it's not her birthday Quit anymore. I don't, I don't have to be nice anymore. Yeah, what are you whining about? Back rubs. Give yeah. me a break. Yeah, give me a, yeah. yeah it's You'll have a back rub in 364 more days, Shell. Yeah, it's not like we do it twice or three times or four times a week or anything. Twice or three or four or five or six or seven or eight. Um, well, that's cool, man. That sounds like a very good day. I'm happy for you. Yeah, it was a nice day. And now I'm, you know, sitting in a closet waiting, you know, patiently for all this stuff to come together. And But now we're doing it. We're recording. It's late at night. But it's okay because I don't have to be up super early for work. So let's let's talk. Let's talk yeah, about what, what, we, what we're are we here talking to, about. Let's talk about the the really boring game of basketball I watched last night. Last night wasn't boring. The Celtics won. It was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was. It just wasn't a very competitive game, is I suppose all I mean by that. As someone who yeah. is very indifferent to the who, I have, I, I was actually thinking about this during the game. I feel like I have equal investment in both teams, and that is like a, a very tepid, very specific interest in terms of just you know, kind of generally liking LeBron and a kind of like admiring the athlete kind of way you know and then also like being such good friends with you i feel like it's made me like sub default to becoming like partial fans of the teams you're fans of not even necessarily because i like them in some cases like with the patriots it's because i kind of like 
you have to respect the game at a certain point. You're just like, yeah, they're the best. Look at those numbers, man. Like, I, you know, they're the best. Brady and Belichick, I don't care, you know, if you like them or not. But you have to, like, respect that. So, like, regardless of that, I can always admire it and appreciate that when they're winning. But, like, the Celtics, it's more of a thing of now of, like, well, I don't want Tom to be in a shitty mood. So I hope the Celtics win. <laughs> I think I've, I've matured in, in that way. A little, yeah, yeah. You're not as bad as you used to be. There used to be just like you'd shut down for a day, and you, yeah, you, especially this, the Celts would the Celts hit hard. They still do. So this NBA playoffs is interesting from my perspective. The Celtics are my favorite of any sports team, even more than the Patriots. If you know, gun to my head, if I had to choose, yeah. Um, and this Celtics team, this current iteration of the Celtics, without their two best players, they are as of this recording, one win away from defeating LeBron James, breaking his streak of seven straight years, going to the NBA Finals with three championships mixed in between those seven years. They're one win away from the Finals without Kyrie Irving, without Gordon Hayward, with a rookie leading the team in scoring in the playoffs. It's one of the most ridiculous runs I can ever remember by any basketball team. But... It's a battered team versus a gassed LeBron, if you ask me. Pretty much, yeah. Um, but in the the macro view of the playoffs, this has been a really boring NBA playoffs, just from a basketball fan's perspective. There was a game four. The Western Conference Finals are the two best teams in the league, Golden State and Houston. Game four was amazing. It was a classic. Before that, every... Every game in the East, all five now, have been decided by double digits except one, which was a nine-point win because Jalen Brown uh, hit a a meaningless dunk with two seconds left. Otherwise, <laughs> that would have also been double digits. Yeah. Um, every game in the West, before that classic game four, Golden State had beat Houston by 41 points, I think, in the previous game. It's just yeah, that's, that's boring, Yeah, that's man. boring, man. Like, half the crowd's going to leave by, like, yeah. you know, the third at that point. We actually, we are recording. The game, I assume, is over at this point, but I am recording it. So my plan when we finish this record is to get in bed and watch game five of Houston Golden State, which I'm super pumped for. But the way things are going, it's probably not going to be that close, which is a bummer. I hope I'm wrong. But, yeah, it's been a weird... It's been a weird playoffs. Like the NBA is at a point right now where the talent levels may be as great as it's ever been. Like there are so many good players just spread out across the league, but it's there's such a disparity between a few of these teams who are just the class of the NBA and then everybody else. So teams that are really fun to watch or that have a really good player like Milwaukee with the Greek freak Giannis Antetokounmpo or like the Pelicans with Anthony Davis or the young Philadelphia team, they're all gone now. So it's just Golden State and Houston, the two best teams, playing an unfortunately boring series so far, even though it is tied 2-2, so maybe it'll pick up. And then in the East you have the LeBron Cavaliers, basically. This guy is doing everything versus these young upstart Celtics, who I personally think are maybe the most fun team to watch that's left because they pass the ball a lot. They don't have one guy who's just going to take over the game. You know, it's it's really a team-first mentality, which I always find more entertaining. Golden State's like that too, but they're such a juggernaut with Kevin Durant now that part of me just wants to say, fuck Golden State. Yeah. Um, well, well, I... 
I didn't know if you were going to talk. I didn't know what your situation with the game was or what you were doing with it. I know what happened with the game, so I won't say anything. But I, yeah, don't spoil I, yeah, it. I won't say anything. I would just say it was, it was a good game. That's all I'll say. Oh, nice. Good. Good. That makes me excited. So I won't fall asleep. I'll make sure to stay awake and finish the game. Yeah, yeah. It's a good game. I, That's all I'll say. Good. Good, good, good. I, I, I'm hoping Houston wins, which is weird. Like, I never thought I would root for Houston. But I don't know, man. The Warriors, the Warriors were so great. They were so great. And then Durant had to join the team. <laughs> and it's just like well, explain explain everything. to explain to people like me who aren't as like <laughs> diehard basketball people who know like the the chess moves that people are playing like give right, the, okay. give give the layman's terms of why some why rooting for or why Durant like bloodies the water for you so or I'm sorry mu- muddies not bloodies Jesus it's <laughs> like a sh- shark bait or something <laughs> yeah yeah um so the current iteration of the Warriors really started. With Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green, they were all there were these three players, two guards, and then this kind of do it all center who were drafted. They were homegrown talents, and whenever you draft a player and they develop on that team, that's always the best scenario. Like not only for as a hometown fan, but I think just as a fan of the league. You know, whenever someone is just groomed and developed and becomes a star for the team that chose them, like that believed in them from the beginning, that's always the best scenario you can be involved in. Like LeBron with Cleveland. LeBron initially with Cleveland, for sure. Like even as a Celtics fan, when, you know, Kevin Garnett and Pierce were dominating with the Celtics and LeBron was their main rival, we had so many LeBron haters in Boston, but I always loved them because... A, he's an amazing player, and he was doing it for not only the team that drafted him, but for his actual hometown. You know, it was great. Yeah. Um, So Golden State has these three guys, and they just became this unbeatable trio where Curry and Klay Thompson are two of the ten greatest shooters in the history of the NBA who just happened to be on one starting backcourt for one team at the same time, hitting their prime at the same time. It's, like, unprecedented. And then you have this glue guy, Draymond Green, who's one of the best defenders in the league. He can guard a center. He can guard a point guard. He can do all these things. So they became this really fun, exciting team that was just known for being able to shoot from anywhere on the court, move at a super fast pace. They were fun. They had, like, charisma and attitude. They were cocky on the court. It's like Pete Pete Curry, too. Yeah. And in 2015, they won. They beat LeBron and uh, the Cavs. And then the next year, they went 73-9. and nine. They broke the unbeatable record of Michael Jordan in 1996 with the Bulls when they won 72 games and only lost 10. That record was considered unbeatable. And then the Warriors did it. They, they went 73-9, and nine, beat Durant in the Western Conference Finals in a classic series that Durant and Oklahoma City almost won. They almost stole that thing. And then they went up three games to one against LeBron in a rematch and LeBron and Kyrie Irving came back from three games to one down, beat the 73-9 Warriors, in my opinion, the greatest finals victory an NBA team has ever had in the history of the league. And the following year, really? Durant... I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, yeah. They were 73-9. and They were the defending champs. Game 5 and Game 7 were in Golden State. And LeBron, LeBron and Kyrie somehow come back and take three straight against a team that lost nine games all year. That's... I, yeah, you. I mean, it's a good case. I just I didn't know you were thinking that highly of it. It still blows my mind. Yeah, it struck it me as a bold statement when you send it when you said it at first. But like you know, yeah, it definitely that. Yeah, it's incredible. 
it's like the 07 Pats losing to the Giants sort of big. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, which I, which I was there to witness your reaction to. Exactly. So after that happens, Kevin Durant, who for those who don't know, is probably, if LeBron's still the best player in the NBA, Durant's number two, like he's that good. He he came very close to himself beating that seventy three and nine Warriors, and instead of re upping or finding a new young team to take the lead on, he joins a team that is coming off an NBA title in twenty fifteen and then a seventy three and nine record in twenty sixteen, and decides to just join them and be a part of that. Like it just killed any sense of competition that that guy had. And it made the league, in my opinion, a lot less exciting because if they could win 73 games and were, were one game away from back-to-back NBA titles without the second-best player in the league, how good are they going to be with the second-best player in the league? And, of course, his first year there, they go 16-1 and in the playoffs. They lose one game over the entire NBA playoffs last year and just roll over to a championship, and it's over. And it just... It just makes the league so much more boring. To well, me. Like, you know what it reminds me of is when is when LeBron went to the Heat, and the the Heat just became that disgusting team that you know was stacked and you know started you know sucking up everyone. Yeah, it's a lot like that, but it's so much worse than that, in my opinion. And you know, I was not a fan of that move. Well, especially when uh, especially when like Ray Allen and people like that were going to the Heat. Yeah, well, Ray, Ray Allen was at the end of his career. That was more of like a an affront to Boston fans. Well, yeah, than yeah, like that was a, a league wide problem. It was an especially well, yeah, it was an especially like personal jab. It felt like to you, the LeBron thing. It it is similar. It's definitely like the best comparison. But I think the Durant thing is so much worse because what LeBron did was basically he started fresh with a new team in Miami. Like yeah. basically that that Miami team became like a shell of its former self pre-LeBron, right? And what they did was they brought LeBron and this great power forward named Chris Bosh onto the Heat, and they decided, okay, us as a trio, we're going to be like the next dominant thing in basketball. Yeah. And it it felt a little... Cowardly is like way too strong of a word, but it felt like, oh, you guys are... All three of you are trying to take the easy way out. Like, these were three guys who were the leaders of three separate teams in the Eastern Conference. And they said, ooh, if we combine our powers, we won't really have any competition. And they were right. They made the finals every year they were together. But they kind of had to do it together and figure it out together on the fly. Yeah. What Duran is doing is joining this well-oiled machine. You know, he's already joining the best. It'd be more like if, um, like, after the Pats beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl two years ago... If at that point, like, Aaron Rodgers decided to leave the Packers and join and just be like, oh, I'll just be Brady's backup or when, he, when he's hurt. I mean, it's not even like that. I don't. I, there's really no well, other comparison because football is such a bigger sport with 22 starters. Even hockey, you have four lines of three guys and three lines of two defensemen. Baseball, you have nine player, positional players in a pitcher. Like, it's really hard to make another comparison because basketball is a five-man game. You know, like, there are so few players who can make an impact at any given moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. There are only five players from each team that are on the court at any given time. And when you get to the playoffs, there are really, like, eight players total that have any lasting impact in the playoffs for any any significant team. So when you take one of those five or one of those eight and you – take out you know an average nba player and put kevin durant on it 
to a team that's already won a title and just won 73 games, which is an NBA record. It's just like, I don't know, man. That just, I know some people it didn't bother. Some people said it's more interesting because when are you going to see this level of basketball played again? I get all that. I just don't agree with it. Like I'd rather, I'd rather there be way more competition. So the fact that tonight's game was good and that Houston Golden State are at least tied two to two makes me very happy. Um, it's just a bummer because Golden State was and still is very fun to watch. I just really have a hard time rooting for him because, to me, whenever Durant wins a title with those guys, you're kind of in a lose-lose where you're like, yeah, you were supposed to win. How is this that exciting? Yeah. And if they lose, then it becomes like, a holy shit, how'd you guys choke? You know. Well, I do think about, you know, as a weird example, some, you, you, what you said about the team still has to figure it out in a way because, you know, you have those like the Olympic dream teams, you know, where they take the best of the best and they throw them together and you realize like, oh, you can't have that many starters on a team or that many big guys on a team. There's that much ego on a team. You need to have some like some low men who are willing to just like throw some elbows down there, or, you know, do the dirty work. And, right. you know, there is still that figuring out. But, you know, you it's when you're doing it at that high of a, you know, high of a caliber, you know, it's whatever. It's still unfair, you know, beyond whatever. It's, you know, it's whatever. It's the Yankees. It's whatever. No, for sure. And, like, what's interesting, actually, about that. So, game four, Houston had just lost by 40 points in game three to go down two to one. Game four is in Oakland. Everyone assumes Golden State's going to walk. Like, it's just going to be another blowout. They're going to go up three to one. The series is basically over, right? Right. Houston, Houston Houston ends up winning. And a big reason why they ended up winning is because there was an injury pregame. Andre Iguodala, who comes off the bench for the Warriors usually, he's this old vet who's been in the league for like 13 years at this point. He was hurt and he couldn't play. And if you were just to talk who, who are the best players on the Warriors, you immediately go Kevin Durant, then you go Steph Curry, then you go Clay Thompson, then you go Draymond Green, then you probably get to Andre Iguodala, right? But he is one of those guys that you're talking about who will do the dirty work, who will play hard on defense, who will scrap for loose balls, who will like battle for offensive rebounds, things that those elite players don't always have to worry about. And it really like you lose that one integral piece no matter how good your team is, and it can really throw off your balance. And they lost a game that a lot of fans were completely stunned by. Like, a game that I think Golden State was favored by 9 or 10 points, which in, in a conference finals, to be favored, favored by that much when you're down to the final four teams in the league is enormous, you know? Like, that's a huge, huge advantage. So that just goes to show, like, even though you have Durant and Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green on the court, you lose that one little glue piece, and it can really throw things for a loop. Now... I know Iguodala didn't play again today. I don't know how much that carries over now that they're back in Houston or if it's just a coaching adjustment that they have to figure out, okay, what is our rotation now? But it just has this ripple effect. And to go back to Boston, that's what really blows me away with how well the Celtics are doing. I mean, Gordon Hayward, who was their prize free agent signing last summer, this all-star caliber wing player, goes down in game one of the season, like way back in October. So... As big of a blow as it was, they had all season to really adjust and develop and game plan without him, right? But then Kyrie Irving, who's their Steph Curry, he's their star player. He's the reason why LeBron was able to come back and beat the Warriors two finals ago. Like, without Kyrie Irving, that 
that championship doesn't happen in Cleveland. He goes down in March, and they think he's coming back for the playoffs. And then it's like, oh, maybe the end of the first round. Oh, maybe after the first round. Oh, no, never mind. He's done for the whole playoffs. So while they had like six weeks or whatever to really figure out what they want to do, suddenly they're going in with their effectively last year, their fourth string guard is now their starting point guard for this entire playoff run. And instead of Gordon Hayward, this all-star wing player, they have an actual rookie who turned 20 like two months ago as their leading scorer. And they're somehow still a game away from making the NBA finals. It's just, that's what I'm talking about. Like with the Iguodala injury as well, even on a team as stacked as golden state, when you lose those pieces, especially pieces that big, it just has such a ripple effect in basketball where you really can't hide deficiencies the way you can in the other major sports, you know, like, well, yeah, the depth of your roster, your roster isn't even that big, you know, at the end of the day, like how low, how how many guys you can actually have on a team. And not even depth, but just the way it affects rotations too. Like, you you lose a player of that caliber, and suddenly you're not only is your backup point guard having to fill in all those minutes, but now you're relying on your wings or your center to play even more minutes than they're used to, and then they get tired earlier, and they're asked to do things that they're normally not supposed to do, like go out onto the perimeter and guard smaller, faster guys and stuff like that. Like there's just there's such a chasm that happens in basketball. Like you, there's it's just such a fine line, and normally. Like the kind of the the go to rule in basketball, especially in a seven game series, is whichever team has the best player in that series, that team is more often than not going to win. Like more so than in other sports, a, a single player's dominance can really carry you in basketball in ways that can't be carried in yeah. other sports, just because there are so many other moving parts in football. Like. Randy Moss can be the greatest receiver of all time on the Vikings and his team may not make the playoffs and it's through no fault of his own. There are just way too many other things going on in football. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like things like that in basketball, the, the players are so individually dominant throughout the course of a game that for this, like for the Celts to be up three, two on arguably the greatest player of all time, despite his poor, cast and despite how tired he looked last night it's really it's just crazy i just can't believe it yeah i mean like even him being gassed and having a bad night i think even the announcer said at the end of the game like it by the way we're comparing this against his normal numbers these are still incredible numbers and that he's that he's putting up every game but all right so here's my next question where does the potential greatest player of all time go after he loses this year well it's assuming he's gonna lose I think they're gonna. I, mean, I, I I don't I don't think they make it. I I think he I think he runs out of gas, and I've never had much faith in the like Cleveland as a whole team without him. Like I like I mean, Jay, they, what, they definitely miss they miss Kyrie Irving more than Boston does right now, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, but like J.R. Smith isn't gonna fucking carry them all the way, you know? Like uh, J.R. Smith's a bum. Yeah, Kevin Love's not gonna fucking carry them all. The way. I mean, he's all right, but. You know, like these, I don't know. I just don't see it happening for him without LeBron being at like full potential. And he just, they play him too many, too many minutes, too many games. Like he's just, I don't know. He always, this happens all the time. Like he just seems, he's getting older. I know he's like chirogenically freezing himself every day now, but whatever. Like he's, (laughs) whatever, whatever it is he's doing, you know, he's still tired, man. So I don't know, but it's a long break. You know, he gets, he gets some time before the next game. So no, the next game's tomorrow. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Like compared, like what was that? Like two, three days. That's like a long break for them. 
right now. No, yeah. that's just a day off. That's nothing, especially with travel. The, oh, I'm, mean, thinking, they, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'm looking at the, what day. I'm, I was forgetting what day the fucking games were on. I was thinking of the game I watched. Uh, what was like? What was the game before that? When was game four? Game four was on Monday. Monday, okay. Which yeah. the Cavs won. Yeah, yeah. The, the big fucking LeBron's forty-four yeah. point game or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. The um. I don't, I don't know where he goes, man. I mean, I, I still think it's very possible that they beat the Celtics. I mean, tomorrow is in Cleveland. The Celts have been a terrible road team. LeBron at home. I I don't know. It's going to take a lot for Boston to beat him there. And then you have a game seven. And if I could have any player for a game seven in the NBA, it would be LeBron James for sure. Obviously, it's impossible. But how mad would you be if obviously it's impossible? But how mad would you be if he went to Golden State? <laughs> I mean, at that point, <laughs> that would just be so funny. Yeah, that it, it would be hard to even be mad. It would just be kind of hilarious but then you're 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 literally setting yourself up for like okay you guys have to win 74 games or else you guys better be the best fucking team of all time or yeah you yeah. like you have to go 82 and 0 i guess i don't know i mean i know the rumors are obviously there's a chance he stays in cleveland um the big rumor is that he'll go to the lakers which i think is very very possible um there's another rumor that he would go to philly which personally i don't see that i think that I think that is just made up by, you know, reporters or journalists or there's NBA rumors fans he's going to every team. Well, I mean, there are only so many teams that can afford him right now, but I, I think the most likely scenario is that he goes to the Lakers or stays in Cleveland. The Lakers make sense because, and I've heard this from other people, so this isn't my own original thought, but I agree with it. LeBron's at the stage in his career now where, you know. He he's doing things no we've never seen before in terms of the amount of games he's already put on his body and the the skill level that he's been able to maintain at this point in his career it's pretty much unheard of like you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to a lesser extent and then LeBron like he's already played a few hundred more games in his career than Michael Jordan ever did I think a lot of that's because of college though right well still I mean the 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 physical beating and travel that you put on an NBA season versus a college season is you can't compare the two, you know? Well, just, like, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's younger in season 15 than Jordan would have been in season 15. But there's like the, the fact that there really hasn't been, except for defensively, there has been no significant drop in LeBron's game as a rebounder, passer, or scorer. It's unprecedented. Hey, for me, this is like people who are like talking about like, Joe Montana being better than Tom Brady or something, you know, I'm like, sure. Hey, look for me, I'm fine with people saying Tom Brady's the best. I'm fine with people saying LeBron's the best right now. Like I have no problem with anyone who believes that at this point, I think he's proven. Well, they're, and they're good, um, comparison, LeBron and Brady, because it's not only like their success as champion and as MVP, but their longevity at this point is, I think what's really putting them over the edge. Like if you wanted to compare, Jordan to LeBron or compare Montana to Brady, I think you reach a point where you also have to factor in the number of seasons. So the the idea becomes, well, would you rather have Montana's career of four Super Bowls and the X number of years he played versus Brady and his five Super Bowls plus, you know, 16, 17, 18 years that he's playing? And LeBron's going to be at that point, too, where LeBron... In three years, he's going to be at season 18, and he's probably not going to be that much different of a player than he is right now. And that's when you really, people who really nerd out over this shit really have to take a look and be like, okay, at this point, 
would you rather have LeBron's career if you could pick one career to start your fan to start your like dream team for whatever home team you root for, you know? Yeah. Then it becomes a real question. I think the Lakers make sense though, because at this point his career is, you know, on the back half for sure. He probably knows he has like five dominant years left. And then eventually father time has to catch up and be like, okay, dude, enough. And LeBron is already, you know, he's already a businessman. He's already looking into franchising pizza places and shit. And he wants to be Space Jam a billionaire. Too. Yeah, he wants to be a billionaire. He wants to be like the next media mogul ex-athlete, right? And the way to do that is to go to Los Angeles, where he already has, I think, three properties where Magic Johnson is, who is a great example of an ex-player turned media mogul who now owns a baseball team and has done so many things with his money and has turned his money around into like billion dollar property where he's worth that much money. Yeah. And I th- I think LeBron is probably thinking beyond his basketball career now. And I think if he can go to the Lakers for a few years, bring up that young team, make them relevant and the title contender and build up all that goodwill in LA, not that he would need it, but to go there now and really start thinking about that side of his life like that second career that he wants, yeah. it definitely makes the most sense. And if he cares about being a competitive, being on a competitive basketball team, the Lakers may make more sense anyway, because not only can they sign LeBron, but they can go after other great players like Paul George. They can try to trade for Kawhi Leonard. I mean, they have, they're one of the few teams this off season that has a ton of flexibility with the amount of money they can play players and the, the young assets they can have to make trades, to get, really good really fast so i think it'll be the lakers um which is just crazy to think of lebron in la is an absurd notion and lebron in the west you'll go see him play not only will i see him play but if lebron wants to go to the western conference and get out of the celts conference hell yeah bring that shit on here's my uh shitty segue then speaking of tom brady one thing he will not be doing next season he will not be taking a knee because uh, just to what? What's today? Friday. I keep losing track of the day. It's Friday now at one a.m. on Wednesday, I believe. The N- the NFL announced that they're not going to be allowing players to uh, kneel anymore uh, unpunished. If they kneel during the national anthem, as they have been, that Colin Kaepernick started back in two thousand sixteen to protest police violence and uh, the African American struggles uh, against police brutality and. Uh, racism in the country, you know, he started taking a knee to protest that, and now the NFL is saying if you do that, you will be fined several thousand dollars each time. So, the you know, there's been multiple reactions to this, Tom. I imagine I know what your reaction is, but, you know, hit me with it. It's fucking stupid. The NFL is fucking stupid, once again. I think it's not only a fine, it's a fine for the player and the team, right? And then I think it's also a 15-yard penalty, like before the game even starts. That's ridiculous. Which is hilarious. So like if uh if players on either team kneel simultaneously or they're just offsetting penalties and you just start the game as is anyway, like Yeah, they should form a union. The players union is currently looking at because they were not um approached about this at all. They were not asked for their input about this. So I know the players union is furious and they're saying you know, we're looking over our current collective bargaining agreement with the ownership to see if this violated any any protocol that the players' union should have been involved in this decision making. I mean, look, in full disclosure, like the NBA has a rule where they punish you 
for kneeling before or during the anthem. It goes back to a player named uh, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf in the '90s. I forget when, but I remember when I was a kid. He he was a Muslim player and he knelt uh, protesting, and they shut that shit down like immediately. But what the NBA does allow is for a player's expression of some type of peaceful protest. Like you see it a lot in games, LeBron James wearing, I can't breathe shirts in warmups and stuff like that. And they allow, they not only allow, but they vocally support a player's right to voice their opinion, you know, and they don't separate it from the league. Like they kind of know, like any fucking smart person would know that like, just because a player says something or protests something in a particular way, it doesn't, it doesn't speak for the entire organization, right? Right. And the NFL, the way they're the way they're trying to handle this now at this point in our country is just so dumbfounded. It's just such a plea not only to the Republican fan base who somehow has been coerced into thinking that this is like a direct protest of the flag and anthem itself, which it never was. And it was never meant to be. They're willfully ignorant about it. Uh, yeah, they just want to believe a certain thing. And I think the NFL is definitely kowtowing to Trump because I think they know that Trump is going to start using this rhetoric again come the fall when the midterms show up. Like, the NFL season comes back in September. The midterms are in November. And Trump has already involved himself in this quote-unquote controversy about players kneeling during the national anthem and the flag raising. And I think they're genuinely worried that it's going to come back and it's going to hurt the league politically. Like it's going to lead to more protests and shit and more people boycotting. And I I think, I mean, obviously any decision that an organization makes is going to come back to money. And I think the NFL must think that this is financially in their best interest to make this rule, but it's fucking stupid. Yeah. I mean, the NFL doesn't exactly have the best record right now over the last decade or so of just how they've chosen to go about handling players, handling controversies, handling a whole slew of things, you know, from the whole Nipplegate controversies to how they've handled uh, concussions to how they've handled, you know, even things like, not to get you on a tantrum, but Deflategate, all that stuff, you know, like there's been a whole slew of bad publicity for the NFL over the last decade. And they've just, a lot of their numbers are slipping and a lot of people attribute that to the quality of the the game going down, which, you know, I think is debatable. I actually, I still like an NFL game, but it's getting harder for me to watch. But that's more because of my team than the, the NFL as a league. But that said, you know, it's getting harder and harder to, you know, want to watch the NFL when it's just such a shitty organization that's not taking care of its guys. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the biggest dilemma as an NFL fan is really the the slow manner in which they really started to tackle, uh, no pun intended, I guess, but when they tried to really start handling concussions and CTE, I mean, the fact that high school leagues were on the cutting edge of helmet technology and brain safety, that the NFL had to follow their lead instead of the other way around when the NFL should really be the ambassador for all of this, and they were just trying to shove that shit in a corner and act like it didn't exist. And then we have guys like 
we had a Kansas City Chiefs player drive to the facility and blow his brains out in front of the coaching staff, and his brain was riddled with CTE. We have Aaron Hernandez from the Pats, who I'm not going to excuse all the awful gangbang shit he did. Like, he seems like he was just a straight-up fucking serial killer, but his brain was riddled with CTE. We have, like, the average lifespan of an NFL player is 10 years younger than the average lifespan of an average American male. We have all this awful knowledge at this point, and the NFL has just been so slow to adapt to it. And then they get so many social issues wrong, like not only with the protesting, but shit like Ray Rice punching his wife out in the elevator, and they suspend him for only two games, but you smoke weed and you're suspended for four. And then Mike, oh, wait, Michael there's... Vick can beat dogs and torture dogs. He's he's yeah. he's allowed to come back. And like, oh wait, there's video footage of Ray Rice knocking his wife unconscious in that elevator. So the suspension goes up to indefinite. But wait, NFL, didn't you see that footage? And they say no, they didn't. Turns out that they did. And they were just trying to bury it, like they do for everything. They're just so reactionary on everything. They're just such cowards and like they come off as villainous it's the it's the very definition of the cover-up is worse than the crime yeah they're always trying to they're always trying to just like cover their tracks and you're like why didn't you just do the right thing in the first place man like it wasn't that hard and you clearly just were being stupid or ignorant or willfully blind to whatever problems that are facing the players or the fans or the coaches, whatever is whatever controversy it's been over the last few years, they just handled it so fucking poorly. And I don't know, what do you think you're, I mean, are, obviously I don't think you're going to stop watching Pats games or any of the other games, but like, where do you think fandom goes from this point on with the NFL? Do you think, I, cause it feels like players kneeling loses some, some of those dumb, ignorant country folk people who are completely misrepresented or who are completely misrepresenting what they think that kneeling means. And then you have people like me who almost don't want to watch it because of the way they're treating the players who are kneeling. So you have these dual interests that are not wanting to watch for different reasons. You also have the availability of DVR and the availability of sports highlights on your phone and being able to stream games and... The ability, like you said, you didn't watch the game tonight. You're going to watch it later, the basketball game. And you also have more channels now than ever. You have more streaming options than ever. Like it used to be that people had 20, 50, 60 channels and or, you know, the old days when it was five or whatever or two. And all there was on was football. So more people watched it. And now they have more options and they have more, uh, you know, chances to watch other things besides that. So more people are watching it later or watching other things. And numbers are just going down. So I'm curious, do you think the NFL because of bad publicity is losing its numbers? Do you think it's uh, you know, it's probably a mixture of everything, but do you think how much of it do you think is the quality of the game? And do you think it's the the players, the quality of the players, the quality of the broadcast? Like what do you think is going to most affect I the think, league going forward? I think it honestly, I think some of it is actually the quality of the game. Um Mainly because of the way they have started to schedule it. I mean, I think the idea of having a Thursday night game every week was just a horrible idea. It's one of those... Everyone hates it. It sounds good on paper, like, yay, more football, but all it really does is dilute the brand. It makes watching football less of an event, like less of a TV event, you know? When it was just Sunday and then one game on Monday night, Sunday became like you had to watch football if you were a football fan because that was the only time you were getting your fix. Yeah. Now we have these games on Thursday every single week. 
and they're always fucking terrible because the players don't have enough time to recover from the game before. There's more injuries. There are more injuries. The games are just sloppy, and it makes it less fun to watch. Like, not only now are we getting a diluted football schedule where games become less exciting on paper, just the idea of them, because you know you're never going to go more than two or three days without a football game to watch, but the game's are worse because players play worse when they only have two days to recover after basically getting in a car crash over and over again for three hours every Sunday, which is basically what they're doing to their bodies. And there's other things uh, like I think of, you know, when I hear reports about how they don't even pay refs to train year round, you know, because they, they don't, yeah. you know, so these people aren't even like keeping up with new rules or studying in the off season so that they can be properly, you know, checks for their eye vision and all that stuff every season. They're not doing anything like that. So, like, we have, you know, games are being poorly called constantly. Like, whenever you watch, there's all kinds of reasons that, you know, it's annoying to watch besides just the, you know, commercial breaks and all that. Yeah, I mean, we had the the referee strike, like, five years ago. Oh, yeah, just, and they brought in the, they brought in the replacements. Joke. Jesus. Yeah, the, the NFL has just done so many things wrong. And like what you're saying about the new rule uh, about the kneeling, Basically, you've just pissed off both sides of the spectrum now because the fans who were really anti-kneeling took it out. A lot of them took it out on the league and stopped watching football. And how many of them Um, were watching football in the first place, too, by the way? Not as many as were vocal about it, obviously. But I, I do know that the NFL had a dip in viewership. I don't know how much of that was because of people protesting the Kaepernick shit versus, in my opinion the quality of the league just went way down. Like I definitely watched the least amount of football last year that I had in a very long time. And it was just because the games weren't exciting to watch. Like I would put on a Monday night football game and it would just be dog shit and I wouldn't want to watch it. Like I figured I could do something else with my time, you know? Yeah. And it seems like Um, peak fantasy league is kind of started to decline. I don't hear as much about like those types of big group things going on as much. I know they still are obviously, but just not, I used to say everybody seemed to be a part of it. Now I'm not quite as interested in doing it every year. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think that's still pretty big. and But a- another thing that that has created is I think there's also a um, NFL fandom itself to me seems a lot more spread out, especially with younger fans. Like there's less, you know, rabid home-based fandom, uh, maybe not even just in the NFL. But in general, I think um, it's it's more... The NFL is closer to the NBA in that it's a league more about the players than the teams in a lot of ways. You know, like um, I think there there are many NBA fans who just follow LeBron regardless of the team he's on or Durant regardless of the team he's on. And I think a lot of that is true with football as well, especially with fantasy football. Like people just become attached to guys. And what that what that does is create what the NBA has really succeeded in doing is creating personalities Creating sounds manufactured and cynical. That's not what I mean. But uh, really showcasing a player's personality. And I think that's a huge reason why the NBA has become so popular and continues to grow in popularity. And I think the NFL is trying to get there. But the way the league handles the players is just so antithetical to that and really makes you kind of like personally dislike the way the league handles shit when they can't even respond back to players right to peacefully protest over something that isn't about what its detractors say it's about and then you also have a collusion case Kaepernick is suing the entire league over 
basically saying he was blacklisted for his political beliefs. And they were, they've been able to find in the case that most teams who refused to hire him viewed him as a starting caliber quarterback, which was always the company line of like, well, he's just not good enough to play in the league anymore, which anyone who follows the, yeah. Anyone who follows the NFL knows that was complete and utter bullshit. Um, so there's just, I don't know, man, there's just so much to dislike about the NFL right now. And I'll keep watching because I'm a Patriots fan and this current Patriots dynasty is the greatest thing that's ever been seen in football. It's like the, the pinnacle of football in my opinion. So I can't really turn away from that, but knowing that the league voted, the owners voted 30 to zero. I know the 49ers and the New York jets abstained from voting on this new penalty for kneeling, which I applaud them for doing, even though I wish they would have just voted no and actually voiced some dissent in a kangaroo court for once. But yeah, that me that means that Robert Kraft and the Patriots voted yes on it. And uh, yeah, that, that really pisses me off. I, so I don't know. Well, it's easy for me not to watch the NFL because my team, the Cincinnati Bengals are quite, you know, a little dead to me. Right now, they're just, yeah. you know, but until Marvin Lewis is stripped from this team, I, I feel like it's going to be hard for me to kind of get back in line with the team because it's just, I feel like his era is done. I've given him enough chances. The fact that he has been with the team as long as Belichick has been with the Patriots is absurd. It's just, it's upsetting. He has to have nudes. He has he to have has, nudes. What the fuck does Marvin Lewis have on, he has on some, the Brown he has family? Something. He has He's to got have, something awful on them. One day, it, it, one day, I hope we find out. Maybe it'll make all these years worth it because it's such juicy information. But I, I don't know. But so, as long as Marvin Lewis is in the NFL, that's what's going to prevent me from watching. Also, you know, I, I also obviously feel like players should be allowed to please, peacefully protest however they like. I am a proud lover of the country, which goes without saying, I think. But you know, I get I'm a cornball man. I get cheesy. I have at times. I, I still can get a little you know, welly, you know, in the eyes, a little swelled up when, you know, the anthem's playing because, you know, or the Star Spangled Banner is playing and you're, you're watching the flag. Sometimes I'll like get an image of like the Olympics. I always think about the, like winning a gold medal at the Olympics, not me personally, but like, I think about the players up on the pedestal and like that moment when they see the flag and everything. And I feel like, oh man, that's gotta be like a huge rush to like represent your entire country. And I don't know. I think about yeah. that a lot. And I, I get really emotional. So, like, I'm someone who, like, has gotten very emotional at the flag, like, even in recent years. Um, but at the same time, like, I, if someone wants to burn it, then I don't really care, man. Like, if they've got their reasons, then I, I feel like that's their right, and that's what comes with – that's what true freedom looks like. So there – There is, but there are also – I don't know, like, to compare kneeling to burning a flag is also an extreme that I think is unfair to the, true, the players true, who kneel. True, yeah, especially – yeah, the players who kneel, and especially it's like – you know, you see those memes about like, you know, you, they they said when we were out in the streets the to go, you know, stop protesting. You know, when we peacefully protested, they said, you know, to you know stand up, stop kneeling. You know, you're causing too much ruckus. Like when they fought back, people called us, you know, monsters. It's like there's no winning. Like no one's ever gonna like listen to these people when when pe- when especially the African American community is complaining or upset about something, there is a large section of white people in this country that are going to reject that complaint, like whole cloth, no matter what it is, because they just yeah. can't. It's, and it's not even, and I think what growing up in a kind of, I, I, I call Dayton, Ohio, the, the 
belly fat of the Bible Belt. It's like we it's like we still got a little bit of it, but it's all just kind of like drooping out from the gut and a little bit over the tighter straps of it down south. But we I grew up around a lot of these people and they don't think of it as like hatred. And I think that's why they get so upset when you call them racist or something like that. They're like, I don't hate black people. And it's like it's not about hatred as much as it's about you broadly broadly generalizing feelings about all of them as a group based on your opinions of one or two of them that you might have particularly read about and also like a willful a willful a willful ignorance of their their culture their history and their place in this country and you don't have to agree with every single thing that they're doing but you can still just at some point you just got to shut up man like i don't know exactly i agree with that completely i think to to a certain extent i mean this is just another systemic example of trying to control and confine black and brown people, unfortunately. Um, I don't know how much of that was, uh, like I said, I think the main reasoning that the NFL did what they did was out of fear of political retribution and fear that it would hurt their bottom line. Um, they just happen to have predominantly black, uh, playership in the league, but, the yeah the thing that really drives me crazy is there are so many other examples of ways white people have protested uh, that just don't get flack and the reason why I took umbrage with your like flag burning example is to me burning the flag is a directly anti-american protest like that's you saying this symbol I I want to destroy this symbol that represents your country right and while I think Although isn't I think flag burning is still illegal, right? Technically, no, no, it's legal to burn a flag. Is it legal to burn a flag? Yeah, I thought it, it wasn't. No, no, it's legal. It's it's okay. You will get <laughs> dirty looks. Uh, we have a guy who I you know I, the college I go to uh, every year. There's a guy who always starts a ruckus, and he does so by standing, or at least a couple years ago, he did so by standing on the flag. He just went into like the main quad and just stood on a flag and started talking about you know, police violence and stuff. And he was a white guy. He was trying to like speak out for, you know, you know, black violence and police brutality and stuff. So he was standing on a flag and man, he, the watching the hate that this guy got, you, you kind of like, you had to admire his balls a little bit, but at the same time, you're like, Hey man, like I, in my opinion, you're allowed to do that because, you know, this is a free country and that's freedom of speech as far as I'm concerned. And I think freedom of speech is designed to protect as long as you're not being violent against somebody else. You know, I feel like you should be allowed to do whatever you want. Not like for me, I still file flag burning under peaceful protest. Like I, I understand that it's like an ugly, awful thing to say. But it, for me, it's the equivalent of like you're allowed to be in the KKK as long as you don't kill anybody, you know, like. You know, you're allowed to do disgusting, horrible things that offend people or are radical. You know, that's what the freedom of speech is all about, is defending those things. And even there's things that I think are disgusting and appalling that at times I wish would be shut down. But, you know, that's not really in the spirit of this country. So at least in my opinion, I understand why it upsets people, though. Well, I, I guess to me, like the burning a flag is... It's not being violent against another person, but it's a violent expression. Like you are, you are destroying something and kneeling during the singing of the national anthem. Obviously, yeah, those two you are cannot be less. Separate, yeah. You cannot be less violent or passive in that action, and that's what really drives me crazy about the outrage that was received with this 
protest. And yeah, just the idea of so many, so many white people who get so offended by this shit that black people do. Bunch of pussies. Not not only that, man, but it's like, just try to put yourself in their shoes. Just try to do it and see if you get this angry about this shit, if you get this mad about some guy kneeling, imagine how upset you would be if you were a black people or a black person and had to deal with the shit that black people have to deal with in this country. Like just imagine how upset you would be and then go back to your white bubble and decide if you still want to be that mad about that person kneeling. Like that's the shit that drives me crazy. It's a very amorphous process. This, this sort of bullshit that we do, you know, making a fake life. It's a weird thing. And it is a breeding ground for um, atypical behavior, and certain people have certain processes. That doesn't mean it's acceptable. No, and the I, point I, is that things are changing, and people need to respect each other. I, I just realized in this conversation that I have to let go of being angry at him. He never crossed the line on our show with any, you know, sexual whatever. Verbally, yes, he harassed me, but I he did apologize. I have to let it go, and I I have to give you a chance to to you know for us to be friends again. Absolutely. But it, it's it's hard because honestly, Jason says this happens all the time. In like almost sixty years of working, I've never had anybody yell at me like that on a set, and it's hard to to deal with it. But I'm I'm over it now. I just let it go right here for the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't give it up for anybody else. All right, let's talk about something so much lighter, you know, something happy, something super fun. Let's talk about the, you know, the great comedy Arrested Development, you know, like, because, you know, like, nothing nothing bad's happening there, right? You know, nothing nothing's happened recently. It's just a new season's coming back on Netflix, so nothing nothing to talk about. Nothing bad's happened, right? Nope. Cool. So we don't have to talk about anything, like, controversial or depressing or anything cool. We can just talk about the laughs that, that are going to be had. Yeah. Okay. All right. You want uh, you you t- 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 <laughs> you tell me what happened. You break it down. You introduce this one. What happened this week with the rest of the okay. development in the New York Times interview? We sat down with the cast. It got raw. Yeah, there was a New York Times roundtable with uh, not everybody in the cast, but a good amount of people. Um, let's see. There was it was Alia Shawkat, Jeffrey Tambor, Tony Hale. Jessica Walter, Jason Bateman, David Cross, and Will Arnett. So yes. a, a big chunk of the major crew. Basically everyone except for Michael Sarah. Yeah, I was going to say everyone seems to um, Michael Sarah, yeah. And Portia de Rossi, I guess. Um, so they had this roundtable where they were talking about, you know, what's it like to come back to the show that was so beloved and ahead of its time 15 years later. And they were, you know, having a little back and forth, and they all seemed to get along. And then the interviewer... Uh, decides to address the elephant in the room and talks about Jeffrey Tambor. That's not very Jeff- nice to call him an elephant. He, the interviewer actually I mean, says I it. mean, he's, he's pretty fat, but he's not that fat, you know. Uh, so the interviewer actually says, so a uh, little background for people who don't know. Jeffrey Tambor plays the patriarch in Arrested Development. He was in Larry Sanders' show. He won a bunch of Emmys for Transparent, a show that he has now been fired from. Uh, after accusations of verbal and sexual harassment on that show. He denies the sexual harassment, but admits to all of the 
verbal atrocities that he created, basically just yelling at people, belittling them, bullying them constantly, and it got him fired from the show. So this all happened. The transparent accusations and revelations came out, apparently, while they were towards the end of filming season five of Arrested Development. So they didn't edit him out of the show. He's going to be in season five. He was a part of this roundtable. Um, he addresses the idea of there being a season six, and he says that he would love to be a part of it. So that's what we know now. So the interviewer, uh, and I'm going to quote him directly, says, I have to address the elephant in the room, which is the allegations from the transparent set. The Arrested Development cast has been publicly supportive. Jeffrey, if there's another season, do you expect to be a part of it? He says, I surely hope so. And then Jason Bateman, the main character of Arrested Development, says, well, I won't do it without you. I can tell you that. So they have this little back and forth. And the interviewer brings up uh, a Hollywood Reporter interview Jeffrey Tambor did, where he talked about how he's yelled at directors, assistant directors, at Jill Soloway, who created Transparent, and how he lashed out at Jessica Walter, who plays his wife on Arrested Development. And there's this awkward laughter. And then instead of letting, for some reason, instead of letting Jessica Walter just say her piece, Jason Bateman feels the need. I don't know what, I don't know what led him to do this. Mansplaining. But he, it's total mansplaining over and over and over again. Like not just once, but several times. So. Yeah. And then David Cross jumps in there and he says a couple things, you know. I'm just, Phil, I got to read this whole thing. Because well, not the whole thing, goddamn. No, just this first section because it's amazing to me how Jessica Walter has to finish this point. Okay, have you listened to the so, audio or have you just read it? No, nah, I've just read the transcript. The audio is worse because you can actually like hear how upset she sounds. You can just—it's more clear how it, how much they're ignoring her, which is it makes it harder to hear. Yeah, maybe we can play part of the audio then in this. Yeah, I'll throw uh, some in there. I'll look, for, I'll, I'll look for some some upsetting tidbits to throw in. The on. interviewer says, you even said it to Jeffrey Tamer. You even said, at one point, you lashed out at, and Jessica Walter chimes in and says, Jessica Walter, everybody laughs. And Jason Bateman immediately says, which we've all done, by the way. Jessica Walter responds, oh, you've never yelled at me. Not to belittle what happened, Jason Bateman says. And Walter reaffirms, you've never yelled at me like that. And then Bateman goes on this long-ass explanation about how people do this and you know we're like a family and people yell at each other and love each other and i have zero complaints about what's happened on the set jason bateman no one fucking asked you if you had any complaints this is about jessica walter being abused verbally by jeffrey tambor will arnett tries to make a joke about king bateman's car david cross comes in and says uh you know that Jeffrey Tambor is trying to learn. He's trying to grow from this. And I think that's important to remember. And then Jessica Walter has to say to the reporter after all of this, what was your point about that though? She has to bring the question back to the interviewer because these guys felt the need to just talk over it out of defensiveness for their coworker and insecurity and mansplaining, like all these awful things. So the reporter brings it back up and then, Tambor gets to talk for a moment and then Bateman comes back with even more bullshit about how people are difficult and you kind of have to learn how to work with that. And then Jessica Walter starts crying. It's just, it's crazy. It's a crazy interview. I don't know why. I don't know, man. I don't know what you think about it, but it was so disappointing to read it and see Jason Bateman just like, it's one thing to defend a guy that you love and care for, right? 
It's right. another to maybe get so like maybe his reaction the moment was just like diary of the mouth because he was uncomfortable in the moment. But to just go on and on about this and not even let Jessica Walter have her moment to just talk about how she felt and how she dealt with it, it's just insane to me. Well, I think what's particularly interesting about it is not that Bateman is dismissive of Walters directly in terms of telling her that she's wrong or that she needs to shut up. It's nothing that directly cruel. I think what's so hard to listen to about Bateman is that he keeps kind of coddling everything he's saying in these well not to not to excuse what Jeffrey did but there's a lot of butts everywhere you know so everything's kind of couched like you know obviously this is disturbing behavior but you know this is a film set and actors need to be emotional and it can get awkward and you have to deal with that and you know, obviously we've had very limited, you know, we've had our own personal experiences on film sets and you've just came from one. And obviously, yes, there is, especially when you're doing emotional scenes, a delicate tightrope to walk by everyone on the cast and crew in terms of respecting the actors and respecting the emotion of the scene. And, you know, there is that involved and you have to respect the materials. But, you know, it's different if you're on a slapstick comedy compared to if you're doing, you know, Mad Men or something. And at the same time, you don't need to be a dick to do your work. As long as everybody's doing their work, anybody should be able to go to work and not be screamed at by anybody. Like my brother used to have a job at a newspaper place where the manager, he he was the way he managed was by screaming like at everybody and calling them stupid motherfuckers like every day. And you're just like, who wants to work like that? Like you're an awful human being if you treat people like that. And I don't care what excuse Tambor or Bateman or anybody want to make about the emotional needs of actors but i think that's all a bunch of i think that's all a bunch of bullshit and i think that attitude needs to change and we just obviously need to learn to respect everybody but i also think the real lesson here for not just bateman but like guys generally like i'm sure i've probably done this too in terms of defending people that you want to defend or something like you know like whether it's louis ck or somebody that you like really want to like you're just like but but you know you're like, I understand that it was terrible, but I understand because of this and this. And I just feel like, especially when someone's being that vulnerable in front of you, like, try to be aware of, like, everyone's experiences and their emotions and, you know, be empathetic. Yeah, it's, um, this was kind of eye-opening and disturbing to me in a way because, uh, it really hammered home how it, it's like the first time we got an in-real-time example of someone trying to justify someone else's horrible behavior out of, you know, love for that person or whatever, whatever was going on in Jason Bateman's mind. But Jeffrey Tambor and Jessica Walter are sitting right next to him. And he just feels this need to, yeah, like you said, to put all those butts in there. Like, I'm not condoning it, but, you know, this shit happens sometimes. It's like, just... Or he says something, just, yeah, he says something like... People just need to shut up and listen. Like, just listen to her and have empathy for her. Like, that's all you're, that's all you're expected to do in that moment, you know? Like, this isn't about Jason Bateman at all, so why are you even talking about it? It's a question about these two people who were the aggressor and the victim in, a, in an abuse, like, that happened. And Jessica Walter has to go on and clarify, like, you can say all these butts you want, but... I've been working for almost 60 years and nobody's ever yelled at me like that before on a set. It's just never happened before it happened with Jeffrey Tambor. And this is after everyone on that couch 
knows about all of the abuse allegations Jeffrey Tambor has received that got him fired from this show that was so critically revered and that he was considered a trailblazer for. Like, that couldn't have been an easy decision for that show. But they obviously did it because, I'm assuming, the evidence was so overwhelming that he was verbally abusive. And the, the yeah, the, the idea that a guy just feels the need to try to, like, wash their hands of that or make excuses for that. It's just, it's a great example of kind of what's still so wrong in the conversation that we're having. And I will give, uh, Louis CK is another great example because what you were saying about like the, yeah, but the, yeah, but for his fans, he, yeah, butted himself in his own apology, which was kind of bullshit, you know, like, yeah, I took advantage of these people because they admired me and I was doing this. I was just fucking apologize. Just say you were wrong and say you're sorry, you know? And like, he couldn't even do that. So I will give Jason Bateman credit. I'm going to read really quickly. He tweeted out, I think earlier today or this morning, it's a four part tweet based on listening to the New York times interview and hearing people's thoughts online. I realize that I was wrong here. I sound like I'm condoning yelling at work. I do not. It sounds like I'm excusing Jeffrey. I do not. It sounds like I'm insensitive to Jessica. I am not. In fact, I'm horrified that I wasn't more aware of how this incident affected her. I was so eager to let Jeffrey know that he was supported in his attempt to learn, grow, and apologize that I completely underestimated the feelings of the victim, another person I deeply love. And she was sitting right there. I'm incredibly embarrassed and deeply sorry to have done that to Jessica. This is a big learning moment for me. I shouldn't have tried so hard to mansplain or fix a fight or make everything okay. I should have focused more on what the most important part of it all is. There's never any excuse for abuse in any form from any gender, and the victim's voice needs to be heard and respected, period. I didn't say that and instead said a bunch of other stuff and not very well. I deeply and sincerely apologize. Okay, like that's... He seems genuine there, and that seems like a real apology, and it seems like he understands what he did wrong, which is great, you know? So hopefully hopefully this is just, like he said, a learning experience for him, and honestly, it was kind of eye-opening for me because it makes me wonder, like, have I, have I ever been in a position like that where someone's trying to talk about something that maybe another person I knew did that bothered them or hurt them. And I kept trying to like brush it aside or excuse it in some way because, Oh, but that person probably was having a bet or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like there's just, there's so much complexity that goes way beyond this person abused me and we need to punish the abuser. Like there's just, there's a lot more to the conversation than just someone having to deal with it, I guess, and how it affects other people and the way we, we treat other people and value other people's opinion and their voice and how they feel about a situation like this. Especially because obviously Arrested Development's a ensemble, but Jason Bateman's probably number one on the call sheet, I would guess. And for him to say something like letting Jeffrey know, like, well, I wouldn't do the show without you, you know, like he's like staking his claim, like very early on in the conversation and kind of like stuff like that, like, which he probably doesn't realize how deeply insensitive that is. Yeah, to, uh, exactly. you know, to her to say, you know, like, well, your feelings don't matter because if he's not coming back, I, I don't care how that makes you feel. I won't do the show. And yeah. th- those are the types of things like like you just said that I think all guys should probably learn from and try to be self-reflexive about. And. Yeah, that's the important thing that, that these conversations come from. And I hope Jason Bateman was sincere. Obviously, he comes off like a 
pretty bad. I also thought David Cross came off a little bit like, well, you know, this, what separates Tambor is that he actually apologized. And I was like, ah, eh. you know, like it's kind of like he's kind of making excuses. Or, you know, they're all none of them came off really great. Uh, Bateman comes off the worst. But yeah, it's an unfortunate interview. I've, you know, I'm not that excited for season five of Arrested Development. Season four didn't do much for me. So I don't know, you know, I don't know how quickly I was going to watch it anyway, but I am a fan of the show generally. And hopefully, you know, hopefully it's a good season. I don't, I don't know if I'll be watching it. Apparently Mitch Hurwitz re-edited season four. Yeah, I heard that. Which is in the article. Yeah, because they, the way they had to do that, everyone was so busy. They basically got their own separate character episodes that and they didn't really meet till the end because he couldn't afford to get everybody on the same schedule and shooting at the same time. So it's a really like disjointed fractured season. That's kind of awkward and strangely paced and it just never really worked. So that's, and that really kind of burned me out on the show for a little bit. I mean, I still love the early seasons, but hopefully season- so did, did he re-edit it to make them more intertwined? Yeah. He like, so yeah. that they're more like, flow you know like intercut within each other so it's not quite each person with their own episode so i guess that's how it's recut together so i guess this goes back to the initial question of like i know we've talked about it briefly before but separating the art from the artist are you do you have any reservations about watching it because jeffrey tambor's in it no part of it is i just think it's past it's you know it's for me it's very like i'm i'm super busy i only have time for so many shows and unless I hear that it's back in its prime and really like firing on all cylinders, I don't, I don't know that I, f- I feel like it's kind of past its its peak and I'm sure it's doing good stuff. But, you know, I'm so busy and I don't have much time for all those shows that I used to. And, you know, it's about prioritizing. That's more about that for me than Jeffrey Tambor's existence, like offending me or anything like that, because I don't you know, I don't consider my I, I never watched transparent so like that decision didn't really affect me at all and i'm more attached to the early seasons of arrested development so for me you know what his loss of a career hasn't really affected me all that much you know it's interesting because i'm uh i'm maybe a tiny amount conflicted but since especially after reading this you know everyone seems to be in his corner and even jessica walter after she you know is able to finally get out what she wants to say um, she basically says that she's like learned to forgive it. Um, it doesn't sound like she's totally over it, even though she says that she is, but, um, obviously she's willing to continue working with him. So I, I will check the show out because I love it, but you know, what's weird. This just made me realize, and I don't know how hypocritical this makes me or not, but like if he were to do, say he were to be the lead in a movie coming up and more allegations like this came out. And I would have real pause over whether or not to see it. I also bought the complete Larry Sanders show on Blu-ray <laughs> after after the transparent allegations came out. He's the, and, he's supporting character in that, you know. But not not only that, but part of me, I think in my head, if I even thought about it, which I honestly don't know if I did. This is why it's so weird. I'm just realizing this now. But like in my head, I think it's like, well, did that all happen before? <laughs> Like he started to become a bastard and does that make it okay? It's just, I don't know. It's just weird. I just kind of had that realization that like buying that box set like that didn't sway my opinion whatsoever. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's the greatest show ever. And it's finally on Blu-ray. I have to own it. I you mean, know? I mean, whenever I'm watching like Ferris Bueller or Deadwood or Beetlejuice, I'm looking at Jeffrey Jones being like, dude, that's yeah. a, that's a pedophile right there. Yeah, for sure. Or Seventh Heaven, right? Yeah. So you know, you're you're always kind of like, oh, I mean, I still sometimes you forget. You know, I'll be watching the movie or the show or whatever, and I'll see him, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. just watching him, you know, dance his Harry Bell Fontaine song, and 
loving it every minute. And then it's just like, oh, yeah, he's a fucking child molester. Or I, I don't even remember if he molested. I think it was just child porn. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. But it's still, you know, gross, whatever, horrible. We we definitely need to have a conversation. We we need to have a whole episode dedicated to separating the art from the artist. And I mean, it's, that, it's just going to keep coming up. Like, just this week, we have Morgan Freeman. You know, like yeah, that happened. I thought I dreamt that. That actually did happen, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's it's gonna keep coming up. Regard, we don't need to do a full episode. It's just gonna come up in every episode. Well, no, I mean, I know I mean, what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But because I I do feel like there are some people that I'm willing, like Bill Cosby. I don't ever need to watch anything or any stand up he's ever done again. I'm fucking done with Bill Cosby. He's a he's a serial rapist, and he can fuck off and go to hell. Yeah, but I I also I watched Rosemary's Baby two Halloweens ago, so I, I don't know, man. It's weird. Yeah, man. You know? Early Plansky is like really high on my all-time lists. Like how a number of his titles are, so like that's that's always been difficult for me. Yeah, so it, it's just a. I, I kind of want to have the conversation just so I can kind of get my head straight on why I permit certain things still and but not others and is it just because if I'm not a fan of the person anyway, it's easy to say goodbye to his career and. Yeah. If they're super influential to me, it's a lot harder. And how selfish is that? Or does it even matter? Because if I'm just watching stuff for myself, who gives a shit, you know, because how it doesn't affect other people. I don't know. There's just a whole, Do we wanna, like, a whole can of worms there. You want to make like a scale? Like a, a zero is just an asshole. A three is a yeah, pervert. Let's make, let's make a Kinsey scale and round up every asshole in Hollywood. Like a, t- yeah, a, a, a 10 is a monster. And we'll just start ranking them. We'll be like, all right, where do we stand on Louis C.K.? Is he like a five, a yeah. four? Like what? where's, where's it? Kevin Spacey's like an eight? You know, yeah, like, like we can you... we can watch we can watch Tarantino movies, but not the ones Weinstein produced. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll just put, we'll put it. We'll get we'll apply some math and see who's the you know worst monster in Hollywood these days. That could be kind of fun. We could do a really morbid episode about that. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, yeah. that would be really fucked up in a really funny way, though. Yeah, I mean, like, did you see the articles that came out about uh, Woody Allen this morning from Moses Farrow? That he's basically being punished for something he didn't do right yeah moses wrote a lengthy op-ed this morning and published it about defending woody and basically saying you know here's why the accusations against him i've always defended to him and he you know lists all the reasons why and he goes on to explain about his childhood and how what it was like being raised by mia farrow and the type of household that it was and you know it's really it's, it's such a complicated and then you read dylan's reaction to it Dylan Farrow's reaction to it, and basically they're both accusing each other of very, you know, complicated stuff, and they both have seem to have very good reasons, and it's like, well, I don't want to doubt this person who's accused him, but I also, like, see that these other people have a number of good, you know, things backing up their side of the story, too, like, and, it, you know, and then you have, like, Woody, who it's like, I mean, like, sure, the Sunyi thing isn't illegal, but it's also, like, obviously a little questionable in terms of tastes and everything so like it's such a muddied situation at this point that it's so like complicated and who i don't even know what's going to happen when woody allen dies at this point like i don't know what like people are going to do with his legacy like 10 years after he dies it's so tough too because moses and dylan whatever happened with woody allen and with mia farrow and everything that happened then um they were kids and it's just if you try to remember anything from when you were that age it's really really hard like once you have an idea like i i know i've i've told stories 
that I was convinced were memories that happened to me when I was a little kid. I remember specifically one time I was telling a story about um, going to my uh, late grandfather's house and him yelling at me for wearing a hat at the kitchen counter and being really like struck by it because it was this like weird kind of racy comment that he made. Um, and I would tell that story. And one time I told it in front of my sister and she was like, that was me. That was not you. That was, I was the one wearing the hat. And I was like, wait, what? And I, it was not me trying to steal her story. I had genuinely over time convinced myself that it happened to me because I was there when it happened. I think like the moment just kind of shook me and stuck with me, you know? And like over time of telling that story, it became me wearing the hat and my grandfather yelling at me about it, you know? And it's just like memory is just so fluid and weird, especially when your brain is developing that fast and you're being inundated with all this information when you're that young. And it's just, I don't know, we'll never, unless Woody Allen comes out and talks about it and I guess changes his story or not, but we're we're never really going to know what happened. Yeah, like speaking of memory, like one of the points that Moses Farrow makes in the article is that one of the cruxes of Dylan's story is that they went up to the attic and played with this giant toy set, and he, uh, or she, yeah, he as a young boy, uh, now woman, I, I transitioned. But so the thing about that Moses was saying was that during the incident, Dylan claims that he was laying on the on his stomach as a little boy when Dylan came in and touched him, or I'm sorry, when Woody came in and touched him, and he was playing on his stomach, laying on the floor of the attic, playing with this giant toy set. And Moses's point, who and Moses is the older brother, and Moses is saying the thing about that house is that he's talking about is the attic was disgusting. No one went up in the attic. There was no there's nothing up there. There was no toys. No one ever went up there. It was nothing but spider webs and disgusting things. We never had a giant toy set. Like there's no there's no toy. Like there's no train uh, you know, he starts going on about all these details about the house and how, like, it would have been impossible to go up into the attic at that point. Like, that's just not, it wasn't an easy access to get to the attic, and, like, it makes no sense that that's where they would go. And, like, little things like that where you're just like, well, you know, whose memory is correct here? You know, like, I don't I don't want to call anyone a liar, and I don't want to take sides, so I guess I just kind of need to sit back and, you know, wait for the fucking waste to clear or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my my siblings could legit tell me anything about our childhood, and I would just have to believe him because my memory is garbage, and I just don't remember things. Yeah. So I don't know. So, all right, well, before I forget this fucking movie, because I've already forgotten some of it, if that spoils a little bit of our review, we got to get hurrying, buddy, because it's going to be a long episode, because we still have to dive in to Deadpool 2. Doing the right thing is messy. But if you want to fight for what's right, sometimes you have to fight dirty. And that is why Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants is pure pornography. Oh, God, I wish I finished college. It lives up to the hype, plus plus. Fuck it, they probably won't even make it three. Yeah, why would they? Stop it, too. You killed it. <laughs> Ugh, that was a big fart from you. Deadpool 2, that's my review. A stinker, you stinker. Coming from your butt, it's, you know what it is with Deadpool. It was it was fine. That was that's um, that's my review. Deadpool two was totally fine. The first I liked the first one a lot more. You know what the, my problem with Deadpool was in this movie? Maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset to appreciate it, but I don't think so. He's like he's that friend that just never has an off switch, and you just 
you can only deal with them so much. Like, oh, we're going to go hang out with Bill tonight. Bill's a lot of fun. And then by hour three, you're like, Bill, you got to shut the fuck up and just chill. You know, like that's what Deadpool is. He's just so on all the time. And I just found it exhausting in this movie. I saw that Deadpool 2 was trolls for adults. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I don't know. Just like something that like little kids would be excited about. And you're just like, oh, it's so fucking annoying that you like that. You know? (laughs) And then you like look at adults and they're all really excited to go see Deadpool 2. And you're like, really? You're that excited? He's he's fine, guys. He's fine. Yeah, it's also like he's not that fun. Like a lot of his humor seems... It already feels kind of dated or something like. All right. Well, here's my yeah. Here's my thing with that. I because I think I understand that. My opinion of it is I really I enjoyed the first one for what it was like. I and I think that's what it had going for it was that it was new, it was fresh, it was the first one. So you know, story things aside, because the first one's loose as fuck. It's barely a movie. Like if you rewatch it, like I think the first fifteen minutes of the movie is taking place on the bridge the opening fight scene it's just flashing back constantly and it just goes back to that bridge for like the first hour of the movie the movie's a total mess but it coasts by on laughs and some fun character beats and the you know the fourth wall meta stuff and ryan reynolds is you know he's a charismatic actor like that's all going for it this time through it's going through a lot of the same motions as the first one but it just like you're like oh i've seen this before and it's not doing enough new to chain to like convince me to be excited again so it just feels like a, you know, a retread, and it's really boring. Yeah, comedy sequels are really hard to pull off. I think um, there aren't a lot of examples of comedy sequels working out incredibly well, and I think it's because once you hit that that first movie, and like you said, the the humor is fresh and exciting. When you run it back, it just feels really trite and obvious and repetitive. And you just get bored of it, and like your leash is really, really short. Is there think, is there a comedy sequel that's better than the original that you can think of? Um, Ghostbusters two, obviously. Does Gremlins two count? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good. That would be my vote. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right, move. Yeah, but that's a good question. That that's the thing. Like this movie. Superhero sequels happen all the time. Uh, comedy sequels rarely do. And this is as much of a comedy as a superhero movie, maybe even more so. And when he's just undercutting every serious moment of action and violence with like quippy one-liners or breaking the fourth wall, I just got so fucking tired of it, man. Well, how much of this... So do you think this... Because we had the conversation about Infinity War last week and we were talking about Marvel fatigue. And you know, next week we're going to talk about Star Wars and Star Wars fatigue, so these are kind of interlinked, I think, because you know we have something giant like the Last Jedi that we've been super excited for, and then you're getting this little you know side story with Solo that doesn't have as much to do with the major world. So you're you're like, oh, that's interesting. I like this world enough that I might check that out, but it's not gonna like probably be as exciting of a thing for me. So like your expectations go down a little bit. Same with this one, where you know you go to see. Deadpool, but it's not, you know, he's a side character. It's not, has nothing nearly as big at stake as Infinity War does. So it's just kind of like after a giant meal, it's like going to McDonald's after you've eaten at a steakhouse or something like that. I don't know how to describe it. I think part of it is fatigue. And honestly, I think for me, it's part of it, part of it, most of it, I just wasn't vibing with Deadpool. And if you can't, if you can't appreciate his humor, 
and the type of character that he is, the movie's just not not going to work at all. Like, there's really nothing else the movie has going for it. So did you like nothing about it? Because I laughed at some things. I laughed at... I know. The... I mean, sometimes he was funny. Yeah. Well, like, uh, I liked X-Force. I liked the scene where they all died. Uh, That's I just that was a rip-off of, better... of MacGruber. I see. Like, I've seen bits and pieces of MacGruber. That's one of the big, you know, blind spots in my life. You... I mean, it was clever, and it was funny, and it was way more drawn out. But MacGruber already did that. Assemble the team, and then they all die. Oh, wow. Uh, the the whole time I was like, yeah, MacGruber, the greatest comedy of this decade, already did that shit. I gotta watch MacGruber. <laughs> Plus, they uh, well, I don't want to spoil, but I will say one of the best parts of the movie is the post credit scene. Oh, okay. Well, that I, actually I, really made me laugh. The of Deadpool two, yeah. or of MacGruber. Okay, Deadpool two. I actually I feel bad. I as people have described to me what happens. I was sitting there in the theater. I was like, yeah, there's probably some stupid post credit scene. I. I feel like I don't. It was it was a protest stand. I was like, I'm not going to give in to Marvel. But and it's not even. It's not the end of the credit. It happens like 30 seconds in. I got up pretty quick. I was like, ah, I'm out of here because I, I was walking out, and then it happened, and I was standing. I was like, kind of protesting as well, and I was standing in my seat, and then I realized, like, oh, this looks like it's going to last for a while, and I just kind of had to sit down because there were people sitting behind me. But it ended up being pretty funny. Yeah, that's what I keep hearing, and I kind of when I heard it described, it sounded funny. But whatever, I, I, like I said, I don't care enough to be like go back and see it again or something. Uh, whatever, I'll see it on YouTube no. someday. So, what was your? Uh, my, I guess spoiler for details. What was your? What part of the movie was the funniest for you? Um, generally, I don't know. Like Ryan Reynolds does not. I'm not a big fan of Ryan Reynolds. Like I can acknowledge that he's he's. I can acknowledge he's a charming guy. He seems very nice on Instagram. You know, in, in interviews and stuff, seems very nice. And I've been familiar with him since Two Guys, a Girl, in a Pizza Place. You know, he's been around forever. But he, if you go look at his IMDb, man, he's been in a buttload of shit. Like, just really awful choices, tons of really bad movies. And he's just never really done much for me in terms of being a leading man. So I can acknowledge that when I saw Deadpool, I was like, oh, this is the perfect match for him. He finally found a vehicle that works. Like, where he's a good match. So I think he works as the character, but like you, the character itself is not my favorite. And the quippy one-liners, you know, it's it's like Family Guy or one of those, like, we're just going to throw a thousand jokes at you every minute, and, like, some of them aren't going to stick, but, you know, surely one or two of these is going to make you chuckle because there's so yeah. many of them. So it's kind of that approach to movie making, but it's also... It didn't offend me on a personal level, but there's been a lot of writing about the killing off of Vanessa in the opening of the movie and the fridging of that character, uh, to use comic book slang. I don't know if you're familiar with the backlash it's been getting for all that. Um, I, I have not. What's the backlash? Uh, the backlash is basically here's Deadpool, which is this you know something that's supposed to be deconstructing all these cliches about comic books you know like deadpool's always addressing like oh you know he'll turn to the audience and dress like oh we're doing this little silly thing or we're making fun of comic books or comic book movies but the opening of the movie is vanessa deadpool's partner from the first movie she gets gunned down and killed and fridging is a term that comes from uh, a green lantern comic book back in the late 90s and a journalist wrote it because basically Green Lantern's girlfriend was killed in the early parts of the book and it's about it's a term that refers to female characters that are killed off solely for the male character have to have a reason to like go kick ass and so it was a complaint basically that started because people were saying like wow Vanessa was a great character in the first movie and all you could do with her in this one was have her want a baby and then kill her off and they were asking the writers about the 
movie about that. They're like, you know, you address all these other cliches. Like that's one of the most popular like things that have been overdone in storytelling. Like, why did you not care to address that? And they, their answer was basically like, Oh, well we didn't really think about that. Like we just wanted to take everything away from Deadpool and we knew we were going to bring her back at the end. So it doesn't really matter. And like, you know, like we just, you know, maybe that's our bad, but we just really weren't thinking about it. And, you know, so their answer wasn't great because I think it was in an interview with Vulture. And so that kind of kickstarted a conversation about, you know, these comic book bros, you know, and because, you know, what's her face? The the ex-girl, I, I, the teenage girl who I, I'm blanking on her name because she's such a non-character in these movies. And Negasonic teenage warhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, uh, you know, her, you know, there's not very, I guess you have Domino in this one. But you know these this movies just aren't Domino very good. Domino was the highlight of the movie for me. Yeah, she's actually. she's pretty good, and like her her power with luck, the way that's visualized, is pretty inventive yeah. and cool. I think you're absolutely right. I think that kind of is what the movie is. Like the only meta qualities the movie really has are the breaking of the fourth wall. But in terms of its actual story, it's really not doing anything unique at all. Which is fine if you like, like you can mock those tropes and still. You can send up tropes like that and still lovingly dive into them, you know? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I think Edgar Wright does that a lot with his movies, where he plays on tropes like in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, but it's solely out of love, and the movies follow, like, a similar path, or, like, Behind the Mask does that with the slasher film in a really clever way. Deadpool 2 just isn't really clever. Alright guys, do you hear that? That is the sound of fire and burning, because that is what happened to our recording. Tom and I were in the middle of a fascinating, incredible discussion of Deadpool 2 when suddenly the audio files were corrupted. On my end, this is all my fault, this is Phil. I am going to be wrapping up the show solo today because, well, my file screwed up and through no fault of Tom's, the last like seven-ish minutes or so of our conversation just completely vanished uh, it was a battery issue, if you must know. So, you know, it, it's not a, that big a deal. I'm glad it happened in the last, like, seven minutes or so, not the whole episode. So, thankfully, you heard most of the episode. We got all of our points out. We didn't like Deadpool 2. Uh, you might like it. Oh, uh, You know, I talked to a lot of people who seemed to have enjoyed it. But I didn't, and that's the end of the episode anyway. So, you know, we you basically just didn't get our wrap-up and recommendations, which... Tom, he re- he recommended Barry Gifford's novel Wild at Heart, the story of Sailor and Lula, the novel that went on to become Wild at Heart, the David Lynch film. He had just read that and was recommending that. I, in honor of the death of Philip Roth, talked about how much his work had meant to me, how much his novels had meant to me growing up, and what a powerful voice he'd been in uh, literature. So we wanted to honor him, and, you know, unfortunately, we uh, erased it. Or I erased it. Or it never recorded it. Whatever happened. So, unfortunately, that happened. But I'm glad you got to hear the rest of the episode. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every one of those helps us out incredibly. Thank you to Zach Pitts for the theme music. And please find us on Twitter at BigFatBond, all one word. And you can find me at Phil Wiedenheft. Look for us there. Tom, I will not see you next week because you are not there. But I will talk to you. I'm just, you know, reading from my usual prompt. And it says Tom. But he's not here. So I'm just talking to myself alone. This is what my life has become. Goodbye.